Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. What a great song that is. Hallelujah. I praise, we praise Yahweh. Isn't it good to to celebrate Yahweh together as his people? Gathering to find ourselves corporately under the one in whom we live and move and have our being. The only source of genuine life. This morning as we roll into Romans chapter 12, as we continue our series in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, we discover that worship is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a child of God, which of course raises a very important question, namely what does it look like to worship Yahweh rightly? What is worship? I think oftentimes we relegate worship to what we just did, to that, to that thing we do on Sunday mornings before the preacher comes up. You know, we call it, the, it's the singing, the raising of hands, the responding to God emotionally. That's what worship is. And then we engage our minds in a sermon. When the truth is that even though what we just did was worship, the worship that God created us for to find our deepest satisfaction in always involves submitting all that we are to him as we love those whom he loves. Jesus makes this clear in the great commandments. Matthew chapter 22, quoting from the Old Testament, Jesus gives us a passage that we've actually named our church for, the great commandment saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something very interesting. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets by which Jesus seems to be saying all that God has ever demanded and desired for us as his people is that we would worship him with all that we are for his glory and our best. But if that's true, that means that worship isn't a part of a worship service nor is it a religious task we perform from time to time. No, biblical worship, true worship, is a life response to who God is, to what he's done to make us his and what it means for us to be his. Remembering in the beginning, God created us in his image to flourish in and under a right relationship with him who alone is the true source of life. But we saw earlier in the book of Romans that our sin separated us from God and therefore from flourishing as his worshipers. But the good news of the gospel is that God in his grace toward us in Christ has restored to us the fullness of our humanity 
by restoring to us a right relationship with him that we might once again find our deepest joy, our greatest satisfaction in worshiping him. Which is why as we, as Paul, as we find Paul making this transition from Romans 11 to Romans chapter 12, as Paul moves from, uh, as he concludes, I should say, the, the gospel teaching section of the book of Romans, which is chapters 1 to 11, and to, to move into the gospel living section in the book of Romans, which is chapters 12 to the end, we find Paul overwhelmed with joy-filled worship to Yahweh for his sovereign love and saving grace toward us in Christ. Saying, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Say it with me. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is overwhelmed with joy-filled worship to Yahweh as he reflects on all that God has done to make us his. And now as he moves us into Romans chapter 12, he invites us to follow him into this joy, this joy-filled worship by calling us into the heart of worship. Which, as we'll see today, means loving and pursuing Yahweh above all else by abiding in Him and walking in surrendered obedience to Him for His glory, which is always for our best. We'll begin this morning by unpacking what this means. And we'll conclude by considering how cultivating a heart of worship will utterly transform the way we live, especially in our relationships with one another. Let's begin in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, in light of what I I just told you in all these other chapters about who God is and what he's done to restore to us life as it was meant to be in and under him through his son, Jesus Christ, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God towards you in Christ, to present your bodies, that is, all that you are and all that you do all the time, as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to him, for this is worship. We learn at least three things about worship in this one verse. The first thing comes from the therefore at the beginning. Namely, worship is our most obvious response to who God is and what he has done to make us his. Secondly, we see that our opportunity to worship God is a merciful gift from God that restores to us our joy-inducing, image-bearing destiny as human beings. And lastly, we see that true worship happens when we present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. What does that mean? This is a very ironic phrase because Paul is almost certainly drawing an analogy to animals that were sacrificed in his day. Now let me ask you, what happened to an animal in that day when it was sacrificed? Not a trick question. 
It died. Thank you, Kyle. I gave you an easy one, all right? It died. And it didn't only mostly die in the princess bride fashion. It really died. Which means that true worship somehow involves my death. The fact that Jesus amplifies in John 15, where I learn that I must first die to my will, to my kingdom, to my agenda, before I can truly abide in him and thereby enjoy the life he's purchased for me. Isn't this why Jesus says in John chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If anyone would come after me, that is, if anyone would belong to me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple, if anyone wants to be a Christian, then he must deny himself first and take up his cross and follow me. How many of you know that in Jesus' day, a cross wasn't just a cool piece of jewelry or a tattoo for my calf. A cross in Jesus' day was a well-recognized means of execution and therefore a symbol of death, which is why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. There's only one thing you do in a cross. What is it? They got you that time, Kyle. You die. If anyone would come to me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, die to himself, in other words, in order to follow me. Then look at what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a core gospel paradox that we need to get our hearts around. That if you live for yourself, you will forfeit the life you seek. But Jesus says, by dying to yourself to live in me, I and I alone will give you the life you seek and immeasurably more. Paul is simply recasting the words of Jesus in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he says that we must die to ourselves to live as Yahweh's worshipers. How exactly, how specifically do we do that? Look at verse 2. By refusing to be conformed to this fallen world and increasingly transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing through your obedience to God, you may discern that God's will for you is good, acceptable, and perfect. As we continually allow Yahweh to shape our affections, that we might increasingly learn to identify, reject, and replace the lies of this fallen world with the truth of who God is, what He's done to make us His, and what it means for us to be His worshipers, that we might increasingly flourish in Him and thereby point the world to Him. This, Paul says, is the heart of of worship. And practically, it means several things. For me, it means, for example, leaning into God's promises when life doesn't go as I think it should. Anybody ever experienced that? Suffering, pain, death. 
Suffering of people we don't think should suffer. Death of those we don't think should die. God, why is this happening? In these times, I lean in to the promises of God, especially the promise of Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the capital G good of God's glory and our best for those who are called according to his purpose. I find this promise so deeply comforting when I'm suffering, disillusioned, or confused about why life is happening the way it is. I cannot count the number of times I've gone back to this verse that I memorized decades ago. How many times it has reset my mind and comforted my soul by reminding me, first of all, that God is God. And secondly, that God is infinitely good. And that he has proven his kind intentions toward me in Jesus at the cross so that even when I don't understand why this or that bad thing is happening to me or to those I love, the question of God's goodness is settled forever. And that truth has so often melted my fears, doubts, and confusions into hope, joy, and peace. As I identify, reject, and replace the lie that I know best, which is really just a version of the lie that I am God, with the truth that God is God, I am not. He is totally sovereign and perfectly good. Identify, rejecting, and identifying, rejecting, and replacing the lies that hold me captive with the truth that sets me free also means obeying God even, and may I say, especially when I don't want to. Now, I know none of you have ever not wanted to obey God, but that's something I struggle with. Anybody else struggle with it? Yeah, every single day, right? That's who we are on this side of glory, wrestling with God, wanting to do it our way instead of His. But over the years, God is gradually getting through to me. And helping me to understand, as the Apostle John says in 1 John, that his commands are not burdensome. They're the wooings of a good shepherd, leading us to flourish in green pastures as we follow him into the good and perfect, the good, acceptable, and perfect life he has purchased for us. A life we enjoy, Paul says, only by cultivating a heart of worship, a heart that loves and pursues Yahweh above all else by abiding in Him and walking in surrender obedience to Him for His glory that always leads to our best. Specifically, Paul says, by refusing to allow this fallen world to squeeze us into its broken mold as we fill our minds with the truth that sets us free. Isn't that why we're here on Sunday mornings to celebrate who Yahweh is, to celebrate what he has done to make us his and to get our minds and hearts around what it means to be his worshipers? Isn't this why we connect together in gospel communities in order to embody to one another the truth we proclaim, the truth of God's love for us in Christ by loving one another in Christ? 
reminding one another of the ultimate reality of Christ when we're tempted to drift into the insanity of living for ourselves instead of finding ourselves in and under Yahweh, the only source of life? Isn't this why it's so important for us to spend time reading God's word, memorizing God's word, meditating on God's word, which just means mulling it over, allowing God to massage it deeply within our souls so that in the heat of the trial, in the heat of the temptation, we have what we need to identify, reject, and replace the lies that bind us with the truth that sets us free by compelling us to love and pursue Yahweh above all else. Understanding that true worship, though it does happen on Sunday or can happen on Sunday, doesn't only happen on Sunday. It ought to show up and happen every moment of our lives if we belong to Him. Which is why, after explaining what worship is in verses 1 to 2, Paul goes on in Romans 12, verse 3 and following to describe how worshipers worship as a way of life. And not surprisingly, what Paul tells us is very much like what we read in the Great Commandments, that God calls us to love him by loving others. First, Jesus says in John 15, loving one another in the body of Christ. Specifically, we'll see in these verses that because true worshipers live God-centered lives, we actively love those whom God loves in a way that points the world to him. Check out verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to you who would be true worshipers of Yahweh, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here Paul points to the most ancient and fundamental principle in life. God is God and I am not. Try that one on for size with me. Ready? God is God. I am not. The first four words of the Bible, lay it down. In the beginning, God. What you do with those four words defines the rest of who you are and how you live He points us here to the most ancient and fundamental principle of life. God is God, I am not. But he also points us to the most ancient and destructive sin, a.k.a. Adam and Eve trying to make themselves the center of all things instead of finding themselves in and under Yahweh who is the center of all things, thereby plunging themselves and us, their descendants, into the darkness of self-worship. It not only dishonors God, but ruins us. Because God created us to find our light and our life in Him. And we're fooling ourselves if we think we can find it in ourselves or any place else. And yet, how many of you, like me, regularly take the bait? How many of you, like me, continually find yourself tempted to follow Adam and Eve by trying to make yourself to be the most important person in the room? by demanding that others serve and honor you. Anybody? Yeah, me too. 
You see, here Paul in verse three is telling us that by God's infinite mercy and amazing grace toward us in Christ, he has set us free from the self-mutilation of self-worship to once again enjoy life as it was meant to be with Yahweh as our center. Especially as we cultivate a God-given faith that understands we find our best life in not making much of ourselves but in making much of him. Not in self-exaltation, but in self-forgetfulness. So un-American, but so kingdom, so Jesus. Now, self-forgetfulness doesn't mean that we think less of ourselves. How could we? When God thinks so highly of us in Christ, he sees you if you belong to Christ, he sees Christ. God has called you his beloved son, his beloved daughter. He has already given you the highest possible position in life. He has given you the highest possible purpose in life. He's given you the greatest identity you could ever have in life. Which means that that self-forgetfulness doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves. But what What does it mean? means thinking of ourselves less and thereby following Jesus in reflecting God's image by finding our greatest joy and deepest satisfaction in him just as he found his greatest joy and deepest satisfaction in the Father, which ultimately set Jesus free to give himself away for us. Even though we read in Philippians 2, Jesus Christ, the God-man, had every right to be seen and served as king because he found his identity and life in his relationship with his father. He freely laid his rights down in order to love and serve his father by serving those his father loves. And in verse 3, Paul is saying to us, how much more should we who love and pursue Yahweh above all else be willing to lay down our perceived but bogus right to be served in order to serve Yahweh by loving those whom Yahweh loves, especially in the body of Christ. Remembering that every person in the body of Christ is equal in value to God and that God has gifted each one of us in the body of Christ so that together we might point the world to him. This is why Paul says in verse three, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think of yourself as one of God's redeemed people together in and as the body of Christ interdependent upon Needing others and, and being needed by others because that's how we'll fulfill our purpose of bringing glory to God. That's why Paul says in verses four and following, as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then he lists all these different gifts. This isn't an exhaustive list, 
but it is a list of gifts. And Paul's point is, look, every person in the body of Christ is equally valuable to God. And every person in the body of Christ has been gifted by God. And God wants us to be interdependent on one another, caring for one another, honoring one another, serving one another, being served by one another. That's how we'll grow up in Christ and point the world to him. And it's so important for us to remember that God chose to redeem a people for himself. As Americans, we get obsessed with my salvation, my God, what he has done for me, as if my relationship with God is utterly unique. Though it is unique in the sense that God loves me as an individual, the truth is God redeemed a people, his church, so that together we might make much of him. By serving one another in a way that points the world to him. Specifically, Paul says in verse 10, by loving one another with brotherly or sisterly affection. Now, what does that word affection stir in you? Just kind of, well, I'm, you know, I just do what I got to do here. Um, just, being, uh, just being obedient, just, you know, just responding. I'm supposed to, so I'm going to. Now, the word affection has something deep and emotive in it, doesn't it? That God calls us to cultivate brotherly, sisterly affection for one another in the body of Christ. Understanding that as we do, we're following Jesus. Especially as we try to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Instead of seeking honor, we look for ways to give one another honor, which sounds a whole lot like Philippians chapter 2, where we're called to follow Jesus and seeing others' needs as more important than our own. So un-American, but so kingdom. So Jesus, who laid his own needs down, if you will, his own wants and desires down for the sake of others. God calls us to cultivate this kind of affection and love for one another. This is how we worship him, by loving those whom he loves. Not only because it is right, but because this is how we reflect God's humility, God's self-sacrificing love toward us in Christ. Remembering that Jesus embodied the character of God the Father perfectly so that when we emulate Jesus, we're actually emulating God, pointing the world back to him. And when we love one another, when we seek to honor one another, we're reflecting God's humble, self-sacrificing, love-filled image to a world in desperate need of him. And because we were made for this, because we were made to reflect God like the moon reflects the sun, because we were made to bring glory to God, we will find our best life, the life Jesus talks about that we can't find apart from him. As we learn to identify, reject, and replace our tendency to be haughty, verse 16, onomatopoeia, that's what it is. You know, I, I couldn't remember in the first service a word that sounds like what it is. That's an onomatopoeia right there. Haughty. 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 What? Right? Who are you? That's what haughty means. I'm the one who's smart and wise. I'm the, the most important person in the room. I don't even need to associate with you. You're lowly compared to me. That's what haughtiness is. 
God calls us in his mercy and grace to identify, reject, and replace this sinful attitude of haughtiness with one of seeking harmony with one another in the body of Christ. And harmony doesn't just mean we're getting along together. Harmony, if you think of music, means work, music uh, working together, notes working together to become greater than the sum of the parts. He's calling us to work in harmony, to to cultivate harmony with one another, to need each other and to be needed, to care for one another and be cared for. You see this. We worship Yahweh by loving and therefore valuing those whom Yahweh loves. So much so, Paul says in verse 15, that we need to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Caring about one another as we care for ourselves, as Jesus says in the great commandments. Celebrating each other's victories and joys. Mourning with one another in our defeats and our heartbreaks. Because this is how we love one another genuinely. By laying ourselves down to serve one another. Instead of seeking to be served. But that doesn't mean we don't allow one another to serve. We don't allow others in the body of Christ to serve us. Since God has called all of us in the body of Christ to worship him by contributing to the needs of the saints and showing hospitality. Which means that your brother or sister in Christ is called to contribute to the needs of the saints. And you're one of those saints they're called to serve you. So if you resist that, if you say, oh, no, no, I've got this, not only are you being arrogant in and of yourself, you're actually saying to them, I'm not going to allow you fulfill this command that God has given you. It's so important that we allow one another to serve, allow others to serve us. Your brother or sister in Christ is called to serve you and they will find their best life just as you will in loving Yahweh by loving you. Which means that we bless and honor one another by allowing each other to serve us. It's not a godly thing to resist others' help in Christ. As if, well, I'm just going to do it and I don't want to be a burden. It's the opposite of that. It's not godly. It's actually prideful. God says, no, every one of us is commanded and will find our best life in loving him by loving one another. So we need to allow others to serve us even as we seek to serve them. Remembering John 13, 35. I hope you've memorized this one. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? By your love for who? One another in the body of Christ. The most powerful way we show Jesus to the world is by loving, valuing, and deferring to one another in the name of Christ. And not only so that the world looks and says, wow, that community is different. Not not only so that they ultimately see Christ in us, but how many of you know that by loving and serving one another in Christ, we actually equip each other to embody Christ and his kingdom in our individual lives. Helping each other, for example, in verse 14, become people who bless those who persecute us. Bless and not curse. Think about that person who cuts you off. That's not really persecution. We might think it is in America, but our, it might be, that might be just more of a repaying evil for evil. We'll talk about that in a minute too. 
But the idea here, I think, is that as we love one another in Christ, as we bless each other in Christ, as we fill each other's lives with the blessings of God by the way we point each other to him, by the way we embody the truth of the gospel, we fill each other up by God's grace, thereby equipping each other to pour out of God's grace, even to those who would persecute us. In the same way, verse 17, there it is. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Going down to verse 20, he even talks about feeding our enemies, giving water if our enemies are thirsty, choosing not to repay evil for evil, but instead looking for ways to honor those image bearers of God who hate us and don't follow Jesus. Well, how do we get to that place? By loving one another by showing each other mercy, by extending each other grace. As we become a a grace-filled, mercy-filled community where we we take each other where we are, we forgive each other quickly, we learn how to not repay evil for evil in the world and thereby point the world to him. And again, in verse 18, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay the Lord. Again, as we learn to forgive one another, as we learn to to live in God's economy of grace, God's economy of mercy, God's economy of reconciling with one another, we actually prepare one another to not respond to evil with vengeance and thereby show the world something different by our lives. And in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How many of you know that as we continually remind one another of the goodness of God and how he has conquered evil, he is conquering evil, and he will one day finally bring a new heavens and a new earth where only rightness dwells and where evil is no more. As we encourage one another to live in that reality, then that reality will guide our lives and we won't be overcome by evil, but we will continually overcome evil by abiding in him, by walking in surrendered obedience to him together as his people. Which brings us full circle as I close. Today, we've seen that a heart of worship loves and pursues Yahweh above all else by abiding in Him and walking in surrendered obedience to Him for His glory and our best. We saw that worship is our most obvious response to who God is and what He's done to make us His He's done everything. We did nothing. We deserve death. He gave us life. How can we but not respond to him with worship? <clears throat> we saw that our, our opportunity to worship God, did I just read that one? No. Our opportunity to worship God is a merciful gift from God that restores to us our joy-inducing, image-bearing destiny as humans. Sometimes when you do multiples, you forget what you've done. You ever done that, Ryan? It's like, wait, I've already done this? Okay, thanks for bearing with me. Thanks for showing me mercy and grace. You're preparing me to stand against evil and bring goodness into the world. I'm grateful. <laughs> Lastly, true worship happens when we present ourselves to God as living sacrifices, especially as we interact with one another in the body of Christ. 
understanding that because true worshipers live God-centered lives, they actively love those whom God loves in a way that points the world to Him. Now, I, I believe God's Holy Spirit lives in you if you belong to Him today, if you're a follower of Jesus. I believe that God's Word is living and active and that God uses His Word to accomplish His purposes in our lives, which means I know that God is speaking to you through His Word this morning. I wonder what God's Spirit is saying to you right now. Are you cultivating a heart of worship to Yahweh by dying to yourself as you seek to abide in Him and walk in surrendered obedience to Him every moment of your life for His glory and your best? Are you living a life of worship by actively loving and serving those whom Yahweh loves? I wonder this morning, how is God calling you to live less of a self-centered life and more of a God-centered, therefore other-centered life for His glory and your best? Let's take a moment. We're going to take an awkward minute of silence. Music will come back in a minute. Allow God's Spirit to speak to you and respond to Him today.